0: Tayar was highly educated, with a doctorate in paleontology from the Sorbonne, in addition to his religious training, spirited, worldly, and urbane. Before going to China, he had studied philosophy, literature, and science in France, taught physics in Egypt, and, because the anti-clerical laws of 1901 forced the Jesuits to leave France, been ordained a priest in Hastings, England. He had survived World War I, saving lives in the trenches as a medic and stretcher-bearer in some of the most horrific battles, and at war's end was awarded a medal for his bravery by the French government. Still, it was something of a shock for him to arrive alone in China in 1923 in this isolated, far-off land. Only the coastal Chinese were accustomed to Western faces, and I wondered how Teilhard coped with the enormous cultural differences between China and the world he knew. I recalled one of the yellowing photographs of him I had seen, taken sometime in the late 1920s, showing him standing among a group of Chinese and Western colleagues, dapper in a neatly pressed khaki field jacket, not the black Jesuit cassock which he wore only occasionally in Asia. He looked content, confident, perhaps even relieved to be away from Europe and the controversy that surrounded him wherever he went on that continent. Finally having inched our way out of Beijing, we found ourselves driving southwest on a two-lane country highway. We passed wide, cultivated fields and factories with billowing smokestacks. This was modern China, the ancient and the new side-by-side, without a wasted square inch. The driver pressed hard on the gas, pulling up directly behind the car in front of us until the driver changed lanes. My back ached from the stop-and-go traffic, but there was no use fumbling for the seatbelt. They do not exist in Chinese cabs. After an hour, we turned off the highway and onto a bumpy dirt road. This felt worlds away from the dazzling modernity of Beijing. As we passed increasingly rural villages, I saw fewer cars and the people rode bicycles and wore simple clothing. At the road's end, the driver stopped, opened the door, and said, Zhukudian. He lit a cigarette while waiting for me to come out. My translator back at the hotel had assured me the driver would wait for me here. I emerged to see a green hill, some 200 feet high, steep and densely overgrown with vegetation. This was the legendary Dragon Bone Hill. It was named so for its abundant supply of fossilized animal remains, dragon bones to the rural Chinese. The hills here are made up of limestone and chalk, a geological formation especially favorable to the preservation of skeletons of prehistoric animals and remains of human ancestors. Nevertheless, local people still believe it to be a mystical spot where dragons come to die. Some of the more superstitious refuse to venture up the hill at night. By day, however, until the government banned the practice decades ago, people dug up the hill with shovels and pickaxes in search of bones to sell on the medicinal market. Dragons have long been a symbol of strength and vitality in Chinese culture, and their bones were said to hold great curative powers and were valuable commodities. Chinese apothecaries often paid substantial sums for these dragon bones, which were then ground into fine powders and sold as cures for a variety of ailments, from skin rashes to insomnia to impotence. Dragon Bone Hill is now an unassuming spot, and, I gathered, few tourists adventured here in recent years. The fresh forest air, smelling of pine, was invigorating, and I took a deep breath and looked around. The hill I was facing was situated northwest of the village of Jukudian, across the Juku River from me, but it was so quiet and green here that it seemed miles from civilization. It was late afternoon, and I could see the sun slowly descending as I faced the hill. I shouldered my backpack and started from the parking area on a path leading straight up surrounded by a forest of small trees and shrubs. It was eerily quiet. There was not a person in sight. Even my driver had disappeared. As I climbed higher, a chorus of crickets and birds greeted me, and the trees closed around me. Halfway up the hill, I encountered an old sign in Chinese and English directing me to the Peking Man site. I turned and worked my way down, climbing over fallen tree trunks, thick bushes, and ferns. The sound of the crickets was now nearly deafening. Suddenly I reached a cave and a set of broken stairs.